The following sermon is by Dr. Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Please visit us at 2100 Noble Road in Raleigh or on the web at ebcraleigh.com. And now, here's Pastor Josh. Very thankful to be in Ephesians with you again this morning as we continue today in chapter 4. As I pointed out, the word walk is sort of the key word that ties together the first half of the book and the second half. Walk refers to our conduct of lifestyle, our conduct of lifestyle before Christ and now after Christ. And so today we pick up on the new walk, the new life. And that's the title of our sermon this morning, Living Out New Life in Jesus. And if you haven't found it yet, page 1161 of the Pew Bible will put you exactly where we are in Ephesians chapter 4. And today's passage, I think, has two sections. The first section is the old walk, the way we once lived. And the half point comes at verse 20. And the rest of the chapter is about the new life and the new walk that we have in Christ. So first, the old walk. Let's look in verse 17 of chapter 4. We'll make some observations and ask God to work through his word this morning. Now this I say and testify in the Lord you must no longer walk as Gentiles do. It's interesting that throughout the letter, Paul has pointed out that he's referring mainly to Gentile readers, and now he tells these readers not to live like Gentiles, which is almost like me getting up today and saying, Americans, we must not live as Americans tend to live. It's a way of him saying, there's a lifestyle that may be culturally normal, but spiritually harmful. So don't walk in that way. But now notice the tone with which he says it, no longer. And notice the word must. Before that, he uses the word testify. That's the same Greek word from which we get the word martyr. It's hard to convey how serious Paul's tone is here. He could not be saying any more seriously than he is. As someone, you must not live like someone who doesn't have life with Christ. Many of you maybe know this story on July 30th of 1945. The USS Indianapolis was making its way back across the Pacific, having fulfilled its mission to hopefully end war there. And before it could make it back, it was hit and sunk by a Japanese torpedo. And instantaneously, around 900 injured men are now floundering in the ocean water in danger of sharks and with only salt water to refresh them. As they're floundering there, they're experiencing the worst possible temptations. And for four Days and for five nights they continued to flounder. Eventually, after that fifth night, they were rescued, but at that point, only 316 of them were still alive to be rescued. One of the people who survived is Officer Captain Lewis Haynes, and this week I read a lot of his account. And in his account, he explains how difficult it was for them to not drink the salt water. He wrote, there was nothing I could do. He was the chief medical officer at the time. Nothing I could do but give advice, save life jackets, and desperately try to keep them from drinking salt water. 
When the hot sun came out and we were in crystal clear water, you were so thirsty, you couldn't believe it wasn't good enough to drink. I had a hard time convincing them not to drink the salt water. The real young ones, taking away their hope, their water, their food, would drink the salt water and they would die fast. I can remember physically striking men who were drinking water to try to stop them. Along with that, people were experiencing mass hallucinations. One person would say he saw something, and then the rest would say they also saw it. One person said, what are you doing? Doctor, there's an island up here just ahead of us. One of us can go ashore, and then at 15-minute intervals, we can sleep. They all said they saw the island. You couldn't convince them otherwise. Even I fought hallucinations off and on, but something brought me back to reality. The tone that Chief Medical Officer Haynes had bobbing in the ocean is the tone Paul has with us here in verse 17. Don't drink the salt water. You must no longer live as if life apart from Christ would be good for you. And now he's going to give three descriptions of what that life is like. So if you're a note taker, I'll make it as easy as I can. That life the Gentiles live, the life apart from God, has a darkened mind, a hardened heart, and a calloused conscience. Now it's vital that each one of us take stock this morning. As we read each one of these descriptions, we ought to ask, is this describing me? So now a darkened mind. Here's the end of verse 17. Lest we hallucinate and think we're seeing reality, let us be clarified by the truth of God. In the futility of their minds, they are darkened in their understanding. Futility means to make much of something that is actually of very little importance. It means to have your priorities inverted. Darkened means to be unwilling to perceive or understand. Therefore, this describes a kind of mind that has lost touch with reality and instead fumbles upon inane trivialities. This is the mind that rejects truth. We must ask, does it describe me? Now, secondly, a hardened heart. Verse 18 continues, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. It's horrifically sad to read alienated from the life of God, but notice why one is alienated from the life of God. Because of ignorance. But then notice the ignorance is due to the hardness of heart. It is culpable ignorance. Willful ignorance. In the Bible, knowledge of God is not merely intellectual assent of truths. It is knowledge of relationship and trust. This ignorance then is a rejection of relationship, of trust, surrender, faith, or life with God. Again, we must ask a hard question. Does this describe me? Now third, a calloused conscience in verse 19. They have become callous and have given themselves to sensuality, greedy to practice Every kind of impurity. The word callous is from a Greek word that means to lose all sensitivity. You can picture a portion of one's body where the nerve endings no longer work. But notice that deadness of feeling has caused people to be desperate to feel anything. So look at how verse 19 goes from a callousness 
that moves one to be greedy to feel something else. A spot where there is no sensation might lead someone to pursue sensation in all the wrong places. So now this callousness leads to a law of diminishing returns. I remember when I first was learning to play the guitar, you can tell I didn't learn very well because you've never seen me play. (laughs) Uh, When I was learning, though, I remember after a few months that feeling you get where you can't feel your fingers anymore. And so you can be outside and you're working on the yard and you have a splinter and you don't even know it. You're in this position where you can't feel and you miss the feeling of feeling. And so you might do something to feel anything. This is what verse 19 is describing. We all know as sinners there's a diminishing return when you pursue something. You think it'll make me as happy as last time and it doesn't. And so you go further to feel something and you don't feel as much. This is a horrible truth of callousness. Verse 18 is describing the worst condition any of us can be in, alienated from the life of God. Friend, is it describing you? Let me point us some things that hopefully will encourage us. If this is describing us, this is not because God has pushed us away. This is because we have pushed him away. In fact, we could say that our alienation is willful, that it is also prideful, and that it is further hateful. I want to describe each word. It's willful because it's culpable. It's because of a hardness in our heart. It's prideful because it's our false sensation that we can do it apart from God. Think how often in history this has been the case. The Tower of Babel is built to make their own name great. Later we read of Goliath who boasts, nobody can knock me over. Then we read of Nebuchadnezzar's egomania as he walks out and looks at his empire, which he says he himself has built. Friend, let me remind you how those stories end. Tower of Babel crumbles. Goliath falls. And Nebuchadnezzar, in mercy, is humbled through becoming a wild animal and then finally coming to faith. Our rejection is willful and it is prideful, but further it is hateful. The word Gentile is often used in the Bible to refer to just the world generally, the world that's opposed to God, the world that opposes our Creator, beats His prophets, and then eventually crucified His Son. Our enmity at God is because of a hatefulness in us. Does this passage describe you? Does it describe me? Well, the good news is that it doesn't have to be the end of our description. Look in verse 20. That is not the way you learned Christ. See, there's such good news for us this morning. If honestly in verse 17 and 18 and 19, we realize that that's describing a hard heart that we have, a darkened mind that we have, a callous conscience that we have, that is not the way our story needs to end because there is Christ. Christ can give us a new heart, a new mind, and a sensitive conscience. Now Paul knows that that may describe us because you actually have never come to Christ, or it may describe us because you are a Christian, but you're one who's been hardening again. So look in verse 21. Notice the wisdom of it. 
assuming that you have heard about him. He's first now addressing those who maybe you're not a Christian, you're not saved. Maybe that's why you have a darkened mind, a hardened heart, and a callous conscience. You need to begin with knowing who Jesus is so that you can put your trust in him and to be given new life. But then the rest of the verse goes on to describe those who maybe are Christians but have started to lose their way. That's not how you were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. Because even as Christians, we can start fading back to a darkened mind and a hardened heart and a calloused conscience. So friend, here's what Paul is telling us. You don't have to die through drinking salt water. There is fresh water that gives life, and his name is Jesus. Trust in him. Take him. And Christian, return to him. Everything hinges on Christ. It's so interesting. This is the only formulation in the entire scriptures that says you have learned and then it has a person at the end of it. That never happens anywhere else. It never says you've learned David, you've learned this person. You've, no, nowhere else does it ever say that. It just says you've learned Christ. And in Colossians, when he uses a similar phrase, he says you've learned grace. Jesus and grace presented synonymously, interchangeably. You can know the grace of God through Jesus. Now verses 22 through 24 get very real with us as Christians about that power that's available to us but now needs to be accessed. Let's look at verse 22 through 24. Put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life is corrupt through deceitful desires. Be renewed in the spirit of your minds and put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Something interesting is going on in the grammar for those who would translate it. The put off in 22 and the put on in 24 are both grammatically described as something that has been accomplished. And yet verse 23, be renewed, is grammatically described as something that needs to continue to happen by an agent acting on us. One writer puts it this way. The apostle, Paul, often describes who we already are in Christ while also pointing out what Christ must continue to do in us. We are free from sin's penalty and we are free from our former way of life and yet we must daily be purified through trust in the one who gives such new life. That's the exact balance that's being struck here. We're not what we were. If any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is past, the new has come. And yet we all know through experience that newness still has to be partaken of moment by moment as we're renewed through faith in the one who made us new, through faith in Christ. And I don't think anybody's illustrated that as well as C.S. Lewis. When he wrote about a man who had a red lizard on his shoulder in his helpful book, The Great Divorce. In The Great Divorce, he's describing this exact experience, being divorced from the old self and being made new in the new self. And he describes a young man who has a red lizard on his shoulder. And the red lizard represents that thing that you hate, but that you also kind of love. That sinful thing you wish you could get rid of, but you also aren't quite ready to let it go. There's this moment in the dialogue where an angel comes to remove the red lizard from the man. 
And the dialogue, I think, is quite humorous. Would you like me to remove the lizard? The angel says. The young man says, of course I would. The angel says, then I'll kill him. Oh, keep away. You're hurting me, the young man says. Well, don't you want him killed, says the angel. Well, you didn't say anything about killing him. That sounds a little drastic. It's the only way, says the angel. Can I kill the lizard? Well, maybe we should talk about this later. There's no time to talk about it later. Can I kill the lizard? Well, I don't want to be such a nuisance. I'm sure the lizard will go back to sleep on his own. No, can I kill it? Well, let's go with a more gradual process. The gradual process is of no use at all. Can I kill it? And then the red lizard whispers to the young man. And he says this, be careful. The angel can do what he said he can do. He can kill me. One fatal word from you, and he will, but then you'll be without me forever. How would you live? It may be natural for the angel to not have the red lizard, but it isn't natural for you. I'll be better now. I've gone too far in the past, but I promise I won't do it again. This is exactly what Paul is referring to when he says, you've put off the old, you have the new, so let yourself be renewed. Whatever red lizard it is, Christ can kill it. So what does the new life look like? And that's where verses 25 through 32 come into hand. This is the kind of new life Jesus can give when we let him renew us. And here we now have five categories of ethical areas. And here's the first, verse 25. By the power of Christ, we can speak the truth. Verse 25, therefore putting away falsehood. Let us each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. I want you to notice the pattern of verse 25, because it's the pattern of all the ethics. First, they say, don't do this anymore, because now you can do this, and here's why you ought to do it. Okay? So not the old manner of life, the new manner of life, and here's why. And in verse 25, not the old, falsehood, the new, truth, and here's why, because you're members one of another. Remember in chapter 4, he's still talking about how we live together as a body, telling the truth. Jesus, who is the truth, lived the truth and told the truth, no matter what the cost was for him. Even standing before Pontius Pilate with his life in the balance, trusting God and speaking truth. This is the new life that God can work in us. Truth telling. Secondly, being righteously angry. Verse 26 is one of these amazing seeming paradoxes of the Bible. Look at the first few words of verse 26. Be angry and do not sin. How does that one work out? We're supposed to be angry? Well, the answer is yes. In verse 31 and 32, he'll say there's a certain kind of anger we need to get away from. But in verse 26, he says there's a certain kind of anger we need to have. An anger that is necessary, an anger that is righteous, and then an anger that must still not cross into the threshold of sin. It is so hard for us as humans to have these two things to be true. Jesus modeled them perfectly. In his life, there was a time where there were people using the Gentile courtyard for temple commerce, and it kept Gentiles from coming to put worship in Yahweh. And so Jesus, in righteous anger, overthrew the tables and drove out the animals. God tells us throughout the Bible things that he's righteously angry about, widows who are overlooked, orphans who are abused, shepherds who take advantage of their sheep, Ezekiel 34. Christian, there are things that must make you righteously angry. 
things that are unjust, things that are vile, things that are wrong, and yet not sinfully angry, like Jesus still known as being gentle and lowly. James 1.20 helps us. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. But now verse 26 goes on to give us some clarity so that we know that our Anger is not sinful anger. Look at the rest of the verse. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Some of the old translations say, give no foothold. And I like that image because you can just picture that salesman who keeps knocking and you go to close the door and he slides his foot in and then you realize he's going to be there a lot longer. 26 and 27 are extremely important for our relationships, but let me just give an honest word to you. They are most important in our most intimate relationships because the more intimate the relationship is, the easier it is to be angry with one another. When my wife and I were engaged, we had one of those wedding showers and one of my aunts gave us a pillow and embroidered on the pillow was always kiss me goodnight. And she said, if you'll do that, It'll go a long way towards not giving the devil a foothold. To be candid, Steph and I have found many times where we realized we got to come together here and we got to pray and I got to, I need to apologize normally is what needs to happen because uh, we can't go to bed angry with one another. Warren Wearsby, some of you would know his name. He tells a true story of a man who came into his office and said, I'm here Uh, because I'm hoping you as a pastor will officiate my wedding. And Warren, of course, said, well, I need to meet the other half so it can kind of get a story of who you guys are and and what your background is. And he said, well, sure, I'll I'll bring my bride-to-be, but let me just tell you what the story is. Here's what the man said. 30 years ago, this woman and I were already married to each other. But then we got into an argument 30 years ago. I got mad. We separated And then we did a stupid thing and got a divorce because we were both too proud to apologize. Now, all these years we've lived alone, we realize how foolish we've been. Our bitterness has robbed us of the joy of life, but now we want to remarry and see if the Lord can give us a few years of happiness before we die. And God's grace, Warren brought them back together. But friend, don't underestimate how dangerous it is to give a foothold to the devil. All right, the third category is labor to share. So first he said, speak the truth, verse 25. Then he told us to be angry, but in a righteous way. But now labor to share, verse 28. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. I, I, I am concerned that we live in a world of such common theft We don't even know what stealing is anymore. So I'm going to tell you something I'm concerned about this week, and we can discuss it more if you disagree with me. Uh, This week, Governor Cooper was thrilled to announce that he has signed into law the legalization of sports gambling in the state of North Carolina. He was very excited about this because he was saying this is an opportunity for the state to make a lot of money. Um, I'd like to point out that in the Bible... Um, The reason the Bible is opposed to gambling is not because it's a game of chance, nor is the Bible opposed to gambling because it's poor stewardship. Those are actually not the primary reasons. 
The Bible is opposed to gambling because the purpose of gambling is to steal from somebody else. The reason you do it is because you put money in with the hopes that you'll take more money out than the other people who are playing the game. And if you remove the money from it, most people don't want to play it anymore because that's not why they're playing it. I want to quote Governor Cooper because I want to explain the reasons why I think the state has now moved into a predatorial relationship with its citizens. Cooper wrote, let's face it, sports wagering is already happening in our state. Surrounding states here and across the country are already taking advantage. And this legislation enables us to get in on it while also providing funding for helping people with gambling. (laughs) It's just hilarious. Uh, Tariq Bakari, who's a Charlotte City Council member following Governor Cooper, said it even more succinctly. Being creative and finding ways to tap into what people are already doing and generate revenue is the kind of creativity we need in our state. Think of the logic of what they're saying. Let's find what people are already doing and then just make money off it, which in Charlotte would mean thousands of people who are human trafficked. Should the state not make money off that? I mean, if I'm a hitman who gets paid to murder people, is Cooper going to take 18% of my cut? I mean, this, that is the dumbest thing I've heard a leader ever say. Let me just remind us here. You can tell i got to control myself right now. Oh, my goodness. I just, it just kills me, though, seriously. Like, step one of being a leader is knowing what the ultimate leader wants, and his name is God. And then step two of being a leader is not doing what the people want if what they want is not what God wants. Your job is to promote what God wants, not what you get paid for. It's just awful. I can't believe this. But I want you to look at verse 28 with me again because I seriously am concerned. We don't even know what honest work is. There's more that I could say, um, but just, just verse 28 If you let God work on your heart just from verse 28, it may help us know what work is. All right, verse 28. Let the thief no longer steal. So good work does not take advantage of someone else. Rather let him labor doing honest work. Good work is honest work. Done with his own hands. So that he may have something to share. Good work produces a good that is a blessing to someone else. Share with someone in need. So we all have to ask, am I doing good work well? Because good work is done with honesty and integrity for the benefit of other people. This, this by the way, describes even our ah vocations. Um, here's what I mean by that. This week... My children, my boys are starting to get to the age where they're excited about working out and getting strong and all that kind of stuff. Um, they're really getting into that. So they, they saw me exercising and they're like, Daddy, I'm going to lift these weights. And I'm always afraid they're going to drop something on their foot and that's going to happen in front of me. As they were asking me about it, it gave me the opportunity to think as a father how I explained to them the purpose of exercise or working out. And I was explaining to them, Son, please don't work out so that you can look in the mirror at yourself. It's not the reason we do this. If you're going to spend time taking care of the body God has given you, do it so you can serve the people that he's put in your care as best as you can. You see, this principle applies to all the things God has given us, gifts 
and proclivities towards. As a pastor, I'm constantly reminded, if I read theology books for my own sake, then I have failed to steward the gift God has given me. I read those for your sake. It also reminds me that we are all in need of these reminders because Paul is writing to the church and he says in present tense, let the thief no longer steal. Meaning Paul thinks that there are thieves in the church. Want to know good news? We're all sinners here. (laughs) Everybody in this room has stuff God is still working on. So be encouraged. God is willing to continue to create the new self in those that he has forgiven. But because this new self is supposed to look like Jesus, think about Jesus for a moment. Think of how he stewarded his body. Fasting for 40 days if necessary to be focused on the mission. Breaking bread with those in need. And then literally breaking his body for the salvation of those who had opposed him. So let us not steal, but labor. And let us labor so we have something to share and do so in honesty. But now the next area of ethics is our speech. And that's verses 29 down to verse 30. So look in verse 29, please. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth. But only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. I want you to just notice something that verse 29 begins with speech, but it ends with how we interact with another human being. Have you ever noticed that how you speak about people informs how you see them? Even if you're just saying it at home to your spouse, man, I can't believe that she always does this. I can't believe that he always acts like that. Then you start to see them that way. And then you start to treat them that way. How you speak about people shapes how you view them and whether or not you'll give grace to them. So I want to give you a recommendation. Start intentionally speaking truthful good things. Isn't it great that they're my brother in Christ? Isn't it great that they're a blessing in this area? And then you'll start to actually think they are. You'll start to see them the way you speak about them. If you can think about anything that you can rejoice in about someone else, start saying it about them and potentially to them. Now, verse 30, when I initially worked through the passage, I thought was a standalone bullet point. But I was wrong. Because the cadence of all these, remember, is a don't do this, do this, and here's why. Remember I showed you that in verse 25? This is the here's why to our speech. Don't speak the wrong way. Speak grace. Why? Verse 30. So that you don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. One author put it this way. The Spirit, who is the divine agent of reconciliation, is especially grieved when our unwholesome speech is uttered against members of the body of Christ. We must be especially careful how we talk about and to one another. The Christian's joy is the Holy Spirit's presence in his life, but the Holy Spirit is grieved when we behave contrary to his very character. Again, Christ alone perfects this. Remember, at his baptism, the Holy Spirit descended like a dove, but was pleased to dwell and remain on him as it never had with any other king. 
Jesus was immediately sensitive to the Spirit, whether it was fasting, whether it was going to the right town, always in tune with the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Now, finally, the final area of our ethics is our forgiveness. Verses 31 through 32. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. There's actually a progression in these terms. Bitterness is something you feel on the inside. Wrath and anger are things you express on the outside. But clamor, which is a word for fighting, and slander, which is a word for blasphemy, are things that then you actually do to the other person. So notice the progression. You feel something on the inside. You start to feel it come on the outside, but then it's focused into words or actions against another person. But this ought not be because of verse 32. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. And then perhaps the most beautiful words of the entire section. As God in Christ forgave you. Let me tell you why I love these words so very, very much. Because as I'm reading through the other words, I'm convicted. I don't always speak the way I ought to speak. I don't have the attitude towards others I ought to always have. I don't always treat the gifts God's given me with the outward service that I'm supposed to treat them with. And yet, the text does not end by saying, and God might forgive you. Or God could forgive you. Or maybe one day would forgive you. No, this is so awesome. The text ends by saying, God in Christ forgave you. I want to encourage you this morning. Why can God forgive sinners? The answer, because Jesus paid it all. Therefore, God can forgive it all. If you're here this morning and you're thinking, this was describing me, the hardened heart, the darkened mind, the callous conscience, I have great news. Jesus died for our callous conscience, our darkened mind, and our hardened heart, and our sinful, lying, selfish pride. Jesus took the consequences of that when he died our death, and he paid it all. And when you put your trust in him, God forgives it all. But Christian, I also have good news for you. Because the old is gone and the new has come, that same power by which Christ rose from the dead can really change the way we live. Because of the assurance that I am forgiven, I can forgive. Many of us have people in our trust, maybe children in our home, employees at our workplace, and we all have at least one, if we're being honest. That it seems like no matter how well we try to navigate things with them, they just persistently fail. We try to make it easier, they fall short. We try to follow up better, they Rebuff. How am I supposed to treat this person who continues to fail even though they have ample instructions and opportunity to do good? What does the Bible say? Treat them like Christ treated you. A good example of this is 1999. In 1999, Gladys Staines and her family were missionaries in India. They had been there for about three decades. Her husband, Graham, at 57 years old, and their two sons, Philip, who was 10, and Timothy, who were 8, were in a van 
in India. They were actually on their way to church ministry, and radical Hindus surrounded the van and doused it with gasoline and lit them on fire, and her husband and her two sons perished that evening. Gladys was at home with Esther, her only other child, who was 12 years old at the time. And here's what Gladys said. When I learned that my family was dead, I told my daughter, we will forgive them. How was I able to forgive? The truth is that I myself am a sinner. And I need Jesus Christ to forgive me. Because I have Jesus in my life, I'm able to forgive others. The story of Gladys Staines moved all throughout the area of India, and it became so well known that one missionary later wrote this. He was sharing the gospel to an Indian man, and the Indian man replied, Is this the same Jesus that Gladys Staines believes in? Yes, said the missionary. The man said, Then I want to know that Jesus. It's a well-known quote by John Newton. John Newton wrote Amazing Grace, but I believe the context of the quote was at morning devotions, even John Newton was impatient with his children. One empathizes. And here's what John said to his kids. I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I want to be. I am not what I hope to be. But I am not what I used to be. By the grace of God, I am what I am. Two responses for us this morning. And they're from verse 20 and 21. Here's the first. Friend, this morning, if those descriptions allowed you the honesty to say, you know what? That's me. I have a dark mind. I have a callous conscience. I have a hard heart. And many of these things are not things I want. Listen, this morning, you have the best opportunity of your life. Receive Christ. And let me say this to you as clearly as I can. Put every objection aside. This is about you and God. So don't walk away today saying, well, so many Christians are hypocrites. You're probably right, but this is about you and Jesus. Well, so many people have let me down. Probably true. This is about you and God. Well, I've tried that in the past. Didn't seem like it worked. Yeah, probably you didn't really know Jesus. So today, receive Jesus. But secondly, for those of us who are like John Newton, and we say, I'm not what I ought to be, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. Let verse 22 through 24 hit you this morning. The old self is gone. The new self has come. But will you let Jesus kill the lizard? Will you let him renew you in the areas you know need to be conformed to the image of Christ? Let him do his work. Let's pray together this morning. God, on this Father's Day, I thank you most that though I don't deserve to call you Father, there was a day that you helped me realize that I'm a sinner, but that Jesus is a Savior for sinners like me. And I thank you, Lord, I remember very well the day I, I quit arguing with you and I admitted that I was a sinner and I asked if you would forgive me, and you did. And the old is past and the new has come. And I know you're still working on that. But I'm so grateful that I can say, God forgave me. And someone today maybe needs to do that. 
and help them to put aside all the other excuses and realize it's about them and God right now. And it's time to just say, God, I need that. I want to be able to say, God forgave me. Jesus took my sin from the east, from the west, and it is gone. But Lord, I also pray for us as Christians. Lord, I watched my own dad's life changed by Christ, and I watched him grow in Christ, and I saw my grandfather do the same thing. I've seen my father-in-law grow like that, and now I'm a dad, and I always feel like I have no idea what I'm doing. So I'm so thankful that the, the life of Christ is here for us to renew us moment by moment and to work in specific areas that you're trying to change for our good and for your glory. And maybe someone has a specific red lizard and it's time to let you kill it. So give us the humility to trust in you to do what you can do. Renew us as Christians into the image of Christ. In his name I pray, amen. You've been listening to Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information and free access to other messages, go to ebcraleigh.com. That's E-B-C-R-A-L-E-I-G-H dot com.